One of the things I've often been curious about is ranking different mitzvot. I don't know, for some reason, I'm very fascinated by the clash of values. And do we rank mitzvot? So it could be that this is a question we could ask in general, do we rank mitzvot? And we could specifically also bring in Talmud Torah. Because we do have an idea, in the, as the Mishnah in Peah says, okay, I should say just hello, that my mom is here too, and my dad and my mom, very exciting. Okay, the Mishnah in Peah says, Talmud Torah connected kulam. There is a sense of Talmud Torah so being a supreme mitzvah. But let's see how that actually uh, plays out. So there's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot that says, treat a light mitzvah as seriously as a heavy mitzvah. She'ein ata yodeya matan scharad shel mitzvot. Because you don't really know how to give reward, how to apportion uh, status to different mitzvot. So if we just have that Mishnah, it sounds like the Mishnah is taking a position that we don't really know what is stronger or less strong. And uh, the Rambam there, the Rambam, we don't have a commentary on the Gemara from the Rambam, but we do have a commentary on the Mishnah. So the Rambam there says, guess what? Um, right now, when it comes to mitzvah say, right, when it comes to positive commandments, there really is no way to mark. There really is no barometer. Like, let me say, I asked you, if I asked any of you, what has greater ranking, lulav or sukkah? It's not even clear to me what, what criteria I would use, right, to decide, right? Are there any clues left in the lachic system how to mark lulav or sukkah? I, I don't know where to get started even. Uh, what is ranks more, let's say for the sake of argument that tefillah is doraita, like what is from the Torah? What has more status, kriyachma or tefillah? Not so clear how to rank these things. But the Rambam says something very interesting. The Rambam says when it comes to negative prohibitions, Lota says we do have a method of ranking them. So what would it be? What is the method of ranking Lota says? So the Rambam points out we have punishments. And maybe punishments reveal uh, where one ranks. Like, I think it's a pretty good argument. Like, what do we think? Uh, it's an accident that a vote Zara, idolatry and adultery are death penalty crimes, but I know talking Lush and Har is not. Right? Again, I'm not saying I'm in favor. Isn't it all, the Torah is arranged in that way? The Torah you know, adultery and murder are much more serious. And be that ready what punishment is I have a way about, but I should say again, could feel free to speak up or to write in the chat. I'm pretty good at multitasking. If you want to make a comment, ask a question. Ah, I'm sorry, who's, who's coming? Yeah, the Tochacha is arranged in that way. That the more the mitzvah, the more, least severe, you know, all, all the way to the Okay. Sorry, I lost my connection for a second. I missed the comment. Can someone say it again? The Tochacha. Can you hear me? Okay. What What is the Tochacha show, though? It starts off with the least severe. You know, I'm going to move a little closer to the router. We'll see if that helps. Yeah, one second. Just moving my chair closer to the source of the Wi-Fi. Okay, let's try this again. Why does the Tocha help me rank mitzvot? 
because it ranks it, you know, ranks it ranks the sins. It ranks the ah, okay, punishment. okay, I hear what you're saying. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I misunderstood the point. But again, just getting back to the Rambam's distinction, right? We might have evidence for the negatives, but not for the positives. Okay, when it comes to the essays, as I said, not so clear what evidence I would bring to prefer sukkah to lulav. Okay. Uh, I want to welcome also Natan Olif for Natan Olif. Natan got engaged very recently. So a mazel tov to Natan. Okay. The, um, and the Rambam even cites an interesting rule. There's a famous rule called Oseik B'mitzvah, Pater Mina Mitzvah. I've been involved in Mitzvah 1 and Mitzvah 2 comes by. I could ignore Mitzvah 2. Again, I am helping an old lady cross the street, and you tell me, but there's a great shear going on right now. I don't have to go to the shear. I'm busy, right? I'm already engaged in a mitzvah. Now, that helps the idea that we can't rank mitzvah say. If I had a clear ranking system, right? Let's say I knew that sukkah mattered more than lulav. So then it would be, if I know that there's, even if I'm about to take my lulav, I'm holding my hand, and I know there's a sukkah opportunity, I would drop it and run. Because I know that one matters more than the other. So maybe the very principle of Oseik B'mitzvah, Paturman HaMitzvah, that principle itself uh, helps clarify that we can't rank mitzvah. Okay, so that is my opening move here. And let us now bring in Talmud Torah. Okay, because if we say you can't really rank mitzvah, and that includes Talmud Torah, so th- then we should apply the regular rule of Oseik B'mitzvah, Paturman HaMitzvah to Talmud Torah. But now there's a Gemara that does something really interesting. There's a Gemara in Kiddushin that says, what if I'm studying Torah and a mitzvah opportunity emerges? Should I stop the Torah study to do the mitzvah opportunity? So the Gemara says, here's the criteria. Is it Efshar, sorry, not in Kiddushin, it's in Moed Katan. Is it Efshar la sot al yedei acherim? Can other people do it? Or is it EF Charlotte? Nobody else could do it. And what's the Gemara's suggestion? That if I'm the only game in town, I should close my Chumash, close my Gemara, and do it. If I'm not the only game in town, so I should continue learning. So let's just plug that in to uh, two scenarios, and then we'll try to analyze it. But let's just first plug it in practically. How would it play out practically? So I think it makes a lot of sense. Let's say we talk about a Chesed opportunity. Again, I am in Shear. I'm having a great time in the Beit Midrash. And I hear, oh, you know, an old lady could use help with her, pa- could use help with her packages. So if I know there are other people around that know the old city square who are going to help her. So I wouldn't have to stop learning. I should keep learning. Somebody else could help her. But if I know that if I don't go, she's not going to receive help. So then indeed, I should close my Sfarim and go help the person. Okay, so that would be how it would play out in a Chesed clash. But it might play out even in other mitzvot ben adam lamako, even mitzvot between me and God. Like, why would I stop learning to take, to hear shofar? Well, shofar is also a mitzvah that nobody else could do, because if there's a mitzvah that's incumbent upon me as an individual, so nobody else could do it for me. Right? So it's what I meant to realize this would be a reason to stop learning for certain chesed things, but this would also be a reason to stop learning for certain uh, ben adam lamako things. Because again, there are various reasons why nobody else could do it. Okay, but in any case, that is the Gemara's criteria. Okay, but now I would like to ask a question. In theory, in theory, we could have been really uh, super into Talmud Torah. 
And what could we have said? Well, we know there's a rule called Osek B'mitzvah, Patim and mitzvah and maybe that should apply across the board. Like, who cares that nobody else could take a lula for me or nobody else could hear shofar for me? The bottom line is I'm involved in one mitzvah. Maybe I should not have to interrupt it. Like, what is the legal mechanism that has me interrupt Torah study to do other mitzvot? Especially, I'll make the question a little bit stronger. Maybe you think it's not such a strong question. What if I take Talmud Torah connected kulam very seriously? And I argue that Talmud Torah is the supreme mitzvah in our tradition. So then it's even more interesting that despite it being the supreme mitzvah, I do interrupt it for other mitzvah. Okay, everybody good with the question? Okay, so we're trying to make sense of that, that we have this grand mitzvah, and yet in many scenarios, I do interrupt it for other mitzvah. Now, I understand what a lot of you are going to say. You could give me a very good pragmatic argument. What is the very good pragmatic argument? If I didn't interrupt Talmud Torah to do anything, so my, I would have a very narrow religious life. Like, I really like to learn. So I might just sit all day in front of Svarim and I'll ignore all other religious responsibilities and just keep saying, Oseg b'mitzvah, patur mitzvah. Therefore, I'm exempt from other mitzvah. But I think we could go a step further, even though I, I accept the pragmatic argument, I think go a step further and give some teeth to the pragmatic argument or give a specific expression. Now, here's where I always feel bad. Uh, you know, since there's some educators, we'll see if uh, what they think, including my two parents. Okay. Often in a shear, there's someone you want to use as a foil. Oh, also, uh, if I remember correctly, Phil's grandmother, you also taught once, right? Weren't you a teacher at some point? Uh, there we go. We got a couple of teachers in the room. Okay. So, um, Nomi, did you ever teach? Yes. Oh, there we go. It's just a room full of educators. Renee? Oh, my God. I should keep trying. Josh Milstein, you ever teach? No, I don't think Josh taught, since he's an undergrad at University of Chicago. Okay, so uh, in any case, the um, sometimes you have an approach that you want to be the foil, like it's the approach that you don't, you're not excited about, but you want to like set up the approach you're excited about. But often I feel like I'm being a little unfair to the foil, like because I'll use like famous rabbis as a foil. Oh, here's the pshad, but I, I'll quote Rashi, but I really want to get to the Ramban. So uh, I guess it's okay, but it does feel a little funny sometimes. But I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to quote an approach from an Achro named Rav Wasserman, Wasserman, and it's really just the foil for the approach I want later. Okay, so Rav Wasserman, he was a very well-known uh, Rosh Yeshiva in Europe. He unfortunately was killed by the Nazis. Okay, Rav Elchanan Wasserman writes that the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, <laughs> that the mitzvah of Talmud Torah is very powerful, but it's an unusual mitzvah. When am I supposed to learn? In some ways, it's the most demanding, it's the least demanding. He says, I'm supposed to learn when I don't have something else pressing to do. He says, that's how the Mitzvah Talmud Torah is formulated. Meaning, I'm just lying around, nothing's gone in my life, I should be Torah studying. So in that sense, it's very demanding. But says Rabbi Khan, but once I have something I have to do, the Mitzvah Talmud Torah goes away. So that's why for him, it's okay for all of us to go to work. We go to work, we're not, you know, picking up a lulav or doing anything. He says, no, but there's something you have to do. If you have to do it, you have to do it. And also other mitzvah are like that, are like work. So Rabbi Khanan says, this Talmud Torah thing, it kicks in as soon as you have nothing you have to be doing. But once you have something you have to be doing, there's no mitzvah of Talmud Torah. So it's not even that I interrupt my Talmud Torah to do these other things. It's that given that these other things are pending, the mitzvah of Talmud Torah dissipates. Okay, that's how Rabbi Khanan navigates. I think it's very interesting, even though it's my foil, it's an interesting way of navigating two things he wants to do. 
Like he wants to make Talmud Torah this all-encompassing mitzvah. It's always present. And yet he wants to account for the fact that we have a lot of other things to do. So he says Talmud Torah is kind of the default. When I have things to do, I do them. When I have nothing else pressing, then Talmud Torah becomes an obligation. Okay, so that has how Rabbi Hanan explains this idea that we interrupt Talmud Torah for other mitzvot. Okay, now the other approach is going to come from Rav Yitzchak Hutner, the Pakad Yitzchak, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Chaim Berlin. Uh, I'll describe it. I'm not going to describe it more, but I'm actually going to leave out the idea because I want to raise another question and then again use a foil and then use Rav Hutner to answer both questions. Okay, so again, what was our first discussion? That we do interrupt Talmud Torah for other mitzvot, assuming nobody else could do them. And we tried to explain why, and we were Rabbi Hanan's approach to why. Okay. I'm now going to raise a totally different question. There's a Tosvot in Brachot on Yud Aleph that is curious about our bracha-making practice. Because uh, we have a lot of people in this chat, in the Zoom, who love to learn. And, but notice, how many times do you make a birkat of Torah in the day? At most once. Right? You get up in the morning, you make a bracha about your Torah study. But let's say you do something else. Like right now, and you have a hefseik, right? I don't know, Avner is studying, he's not studying for a final, actually, it's another month away, but fine. Josh Milstein's studying for a final, and uh, Josh, what do you, I don't know what you mean, he's studying poetry, right, romantic poetry, he's going through Wordsworth, but even though we love Wordsworth, we're not going to call it Talmud Torah, so he's clearly interrupted, and yet, when he comes back to his safer after his Wordsworth session, he's not making new bracha. He says, I made one brick of the Torah, and it covers all day. Now, you might say, okay, what's the big deal? What if we see that regarding other mitzvot? It doesn't seem that way. I'll give you a great example. Let's go to back to the sukkah. Okay, let us say I have a pizza lunch in the sukkah. Very exciting. I make a basukah. Now, my lunch is over. I then go back to my accounting firm. I have a very productive day. I come back for dinner and I have hamburgers. And once again, I make a basukah. And what's the justification? Well, I wasn't in a continuous performance of the sukkah mitzvah. I interrupted it. Since I interrupted it, I should make a new bracha. And there are other mitzvahs that are like that also. And most of us don't do this. Because most of us, uh, you know, in this chat, like say the men who wear tefillin, we don't put on tefillin twice in a day. We put on tefillin for shachras and that's it. But let's say for whatever strange reason, we wanted to put on tefillin again for mincha. It's funny because normally when a yeshiva guy is tefillin on mincha, it means he missed shachras. But what if you didn't miss shachras? You just liked the idea... Uh, Avner, maybe you grew on you. You just love wearing tefillin at Mincha specifically. Okay, so there you go. So you put on tefillin a second time. So you'd make a bracha again. Because the idea would be, it's not the same continuous performance. There was a break. So Tosas raises a great question. Wait, why does Torah study not function the same way as sukkah and tefillin? Okay, we got the question? Okay, great. So Tosas answers that Torah study is different because you never really stop thinking about it. There's never really a break. Okay, now that sounds like a very pious answer, but it doesn't seem to really be true, right? I mean, I am love Torah study, but, you know, when I am, I don't know, playing basketball, my mind is not on the Torah. When I am reading, you know, uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, I'm not thinking about the Ramban al Torah. So it would seem to be that we really do have breaks. So what does it mean that there's no break in the Talmud Torah continuity and that therefore I don't have to make a new bracha? Okay, so here I'm going to do something a little different. Okay, ah, my mother has this comment. Mom, please. I should say, Mom, you're still on mute. I should say Dr. Blau. 
Guys, just a, my mother was a principal for many years and now teaches English writing at various universities. Mom, please. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Everything we do in life is governed by a Torah attitude. So even if we're not directly oh. thinking about Torah, it's permeating Excellent. our life. Excellent. We're going to head there in a minute, but something shocking just happened. Usually, my mother only comments in a shir I give if I ask a question and no one's answered it. And then she feels badly for me and she answers. Okay, But here she actually took the initiative and made a comment. It's a great day in Blau family history. Way to go, mom. Okay, excellent. Okay, so we'll get back to what my mother said a little bit later. But here again, here it's not so much as a foil because I like both commentaries very much. But I'm going to just use a contrast again before we get to uh, Rav Hunter. So Rav Salavechik has a famous idea. Uh, if anyone wants to find this, there's a, oh, I have to tell you a story about this book. This is a good story. Okay. Rav Salavechik was very reluctant to publish. And right now, there are only so many books because after he passed away, the family put out a lot of books. But in his lifetime, you'll see how many things came out. Very few things came out. Right. Halakha Command, The Lonely Man of Faith. Not that many books and essays came out in his lifetime. But there is something, a little book called Shiure Harav, a conspectus of the lectures of Rabbi Yosef B. Soloveitchik. Okay, and it's a summaries of Rabbi Soloveitchik's talks. And it's very different. Like Halakhic Man, you have to wait through, I don't know, 130 pages. These you'll have like four or five page summaries. Okay, but again, but it's called Shiure Harav, a conspectus of the lectures of Rabbi Yosef B. Soloveitchik. So I had a colleague in the Shiva Flappist named Joel Walowelski, and Joel once said to me, oh, I want to tell you why it's called a conspectus. So I said, Joel, I am curious. Why is it called that? So Joel says, well, if we had published it as summaries of the lectures of Rabbi Yosef B. Soloveitchik, that wouldn't sound very enticing to people. Oh, it's only just a summary. I'm not getting the real thing. So we came up with this fancy word conspectus, which means a collection of summaries but nobody knows what it means. Okay, so we say that we told people that it's a summary, but they chose to buy it anyway. So that, that is uh, Joel, it's a good story. That is Joel's story. Okay, so in that book, Shire Harav, so there, um, the there's a there's one chapter you might you know you could find it online if you want if you want to look it up. It's called Impromptu Remarks. I think either Adesium, yeah, Impromptu Remarks Adesium. If anyone wants to find it, it's really just two pages long. Just look for his Google impromptu remarks out of see him and you'll find it. And Ralph Soloveitchik uses beautiful imagery. Okay, Ralph Soloveitchik says, think about a mother and a child, right? You can't say that the child is always at the forefront of the mother's consciousness. That's not true, right? The mother has a job. She's an oncologist. So she's thinking about her patients. She's nothing but the doctor, doctor, about the child. But you can say the Mother always in the background of her consciousness is thinking about the child. My, the child is always there somewhere. Okay. It could be sometimes at the forefront, sometimes in the background, but they're always there. And Rav Salvejic talks about innate awareness and latent awareness. And the claim is that the mother always has some level of awareness of the child. And then Rav Salvejic says, maybe for the person really attached to Torah study, there is something similar. Of course, you go do other things. And of course, when you do those other things, the other things are at the forefront of your consciousness. There's no denying that. However, maybe for someone who's truly attached, right, truly enamored of Torah study, it's always lurking there somewhere. But notice, it's something that Rav Salvechik would say, I wouldn't say that about other mitzvot. I mean, apparently we don't assume that you're so attached to the mitzvot of sukkah 
that you leave the sukkah, but you're still thinking about the sukkah on some level. No, when you leave the sukkah, it's gone. When I take off the tefillin, they're gone. But there's something about the drive and the draw of Torah study, the attraction of it, that it's always there. So that is Rav Salavichik's take on the Tosfot. Okay, we are now going to go to a footer. Now notice again, we raised two questions. For each of them, we described what one 20th century rabbi says, and now we're going to contrast both of them with a different 20th century rabbi. Again, what was our first topic? Why do you interrupt Torah study to do certain other mitzvot? And we had Rav Lachan and Wasserman's approach. Our second topic was, why is it that you don't make multiple brachot in one day on Torah study? And we had Rav Salvechit's approach. Okay, now we get to Rav Hunter, And Rav Hunter is really going to be very close to my mother. Ah, uh, very good. And Avner. Okay, so uh, my mother and Avner are anticipating Rav Hunter here. Okay, Rav Hunter said something very powerful. He said, it's even more than what my mother and Avner said. He said, we talk about Lomed Almanat, learning in order to do certain things. So I'll just mention two things we talk about sometimes. Sometimes we talk about Lomed Almanat, Right, good, exactly. So one value is learning in order to teach. That's a value. That's like a higher level than just learning for yourself. But there is also, Josh Milstein, are you able to follow this year as you wander the UFC campus? I am. I apologize. I was in a. Uh, oh, it's great. I, I love it. No, when you when that's camera, camera, roommate, so I. Uh... If you keep your camera on, we can all get a tour of UFC. You should keep it on. <laughs> Otherwise, I just have to look at my father's fireman. They're not so interesting. Or Offner's window. <laughs> Okay. I've seen Abner's window already. I know what it looks like. Okay. So, uh, in any case, we have Lomade Almanat Lalamade, learning in order to teach. And we have what someone just, my mother just said, Lomade Almanat La Sot, learning in order to do. But notice that is not about the doing, it's about the quality of my learning. That my learning takes on a different coloration, a different character. So it's almost like there's three kinds of learning. I'm not saying they contradict. There's just learning for learning's sake. There's learning in order to teach. And there's learning in order to do. And all of them are defining a quality of my learning. Okay, but what does that mean? Now comes Ruff Hunter's great point. Ruff Hunter would say, in a certain sense, you never interrupt Talmud Torah. It's you further Talmud Torah. Because... We just said one dimension of learning is learning in order to do. Somebody who never closed their Chumash, who never closed their Rambam in order to go help somebody, they lack, they don't lack just Chesed. They lack a component of their Torah study. Right? That's the key move here. Of course they lack the Chesed if they don't help people. But Rav Huna would say your Torah study is missing a dimension. Because in Torah study, we have this idea of lo made amanat lasot. Once Rav Huna says that, and Rav Huna loved this idea, by the way, in the Shavuos volume, it comes up in like four or five different pieces. Rav Hunter says, I've solved both problems we had before. We tried to figure out why you interrupt your Torah study for certain other mitzvot. But according to Rav Hunter, it's now obvious. Rav Hunter would say, you're not even interrupting your Torah study. You're actually adding a dimension to your Torah study. You're making your Torah study a richer kind of Torah study. It's a Torah study that's spilled over into the world of behavior. That is the most profound kind of Torah study. So I know my mother and Avner talked about realizing your Torah values in the world, which I think does fit Rav Hunter. But again, I just, Rav Hunter's classic formulation is that it's adding to your Torah study. It has made your Torah study richer. Okay, so that's, of course, why you would stop, because you're actually adding to Torah study. And when you get to the toast vote, it works out great that if I'm carrying what 
Torah is meant to inspire me, right? If, as my mother and Abner said, if I behave as a good religious moral Jew in the law firm, right? So then my Torah was Almanat Lasot. So that means that those hours of the firm were not really a break, right? They were part of the continuity. So Rafiner says, if you understood that this adds a dimension to the Torah, all the questions fall away. You understand why you interrupt Torah study to do other mitzvot. And you also understand the Tosvot, why Torah study doesn't have interruption in the way that Sukkah does and Philadelphia. Is there a potential contradiction between this and Talmud Torah Knegad Kula? Because I feel like Talmud Torah Knegad Kula sort of implies that Torah is an end in itself. And this is sort of turning it a lot more into a, to a utility. Okay, so look, I, I, there is, obviously asking a very good question, which is always the case, actually. Okay, I, I should say, to since a lot of educators in the room, not only is Avner a source of good questions, but he's quite entertaining. So if you want to enter, if, you, if your class is feeling a little boring, you need to jazz it up, just invite Avner. Mom, invite Avner to be like, I know, in your next stern English composition class. I know it won't go over so well, it won't go so well with the administration, but it'll jazz up the class. Okay, so uh, Avner, I, I'm not going to really deal with it now, just because I'll, I'll just say... <clears throat> Torah as an independent value versus Torah as an instrumental value, right, is a huge conversation. And there are two Gemara you might have encountered at one point, one in Baba Kama, one in Kiddushin, where they asked Talmud or Masa, what comes first, right? Did, have you ever encountered one of those Gemara? Yeah. Right, so was... basically, I'm not going to answer your question, not because it's a bad question, because it's too good a question. You really have to look at those Gemara in depth and what message they're saying about the Talmud Torah versus other practice. But I do think, to something out there, I do think Rav Huttner is trying to deal with your point. But, because I think what Rav Huttner is doing is, I'm not going to say Talmud Torah connected Kula means it's the biggest end in of itself necessarily, but he is saying that when I interrupt it, I'm not really interrupting it. So if someone wants to say that Talmud Torah is the most important mitzvah and still explain how he interrupted, I think Rav Huttner feels like he's done that. So Rav Hunter being like a classic Rosh Yeshiva, like he loves Talmud Torah, I think he feels he's now done the job. Talmud Torah, Kinekulam, I still think Torah study is the greatest mitzvah ever. And yet I could account for the fact that you would stop it to do other mitzvot because when I do this other mitzvot, as I said, it enhances my Torah study. It adds a dimension to my Torah study. So I admit, I'm not so much addressing the instrumental question I'm there, but I think Rav Hunter is trying to dance your dance as it were. How we can still maintain a Talmud Torah connected Kulam perspective. Josh Milstein. Couldn't you say that Talmud Torah connected Kulam, if you take what he's saying to the extreme, that when you're doing when you're doing all of your other various mitzvot, that that in and of itself is a human Talmud Torah. And so therefore you're gonna say Talmud Torah connected Kulam in like the most literal, the most literal formulation of it that you can, which is that when you do every one of these mitzvot, you are in a certain sense being the kind of mitzvah Talmud Torah. Yeah because it's infusing the Torah, and therefore it really is connected, Kula. Josh, that was a very clever reading. Put it in your parish on Peah, or on the sitter. <laughs> that was very clever. See, I, I'm sorry to do this again, but uh, I'm going to do another advertisement for Raita. Okay, if you listen closely to the comments of Avner and Josh Milstein and Natan and Mark Whiteson, you would send your son to Raita, or your grandson, Renee. Okay, great. Okay, uh, or the Zouders. That's, that's true, or the Zouders. Okay, so... Um, Oh, did we lose? Uh, we lost, Oh, Michael Epstein. I'm not sure how Michael Epstein's connected. When he comes back, we'll try to ask him. Okay, so um, 
One more point to Rav Hunter, and then we'll go in a different direction for the last part of this year. Rav Hunter had a phrase for this. He liked to call it bitulo deukiyumo, that what looks like the negation is really the fulfillment. fulfillment. It looks like I'm negating Torah because I am closing my Gemara, but I'm actually fulfilling it. And he used very beautiful imagery that's in the Gemara. His imagery was the breaking of the lucho. And I think it's very powerful imagery because what could one say that the breaking of the lucho on the surface certainly looks like a negation of Torah. Like here, Moshe is coming down from Sinai with tablets that say the Aserat Adibrot. So that seems a very significant uh, object of giving over the Torah, right? We're going to pick certain things as essential messages and have that. And yet, what does Moshe do? He breaks it. Seems like a pretty radical move, by the way, to break the Luchot. And yet, we feel like on the end of the day, that is a furthering of the Torah clause. Okay, so Rav Hunter says that idea that Hazal talked about with breaking the Luchot is actually a much more widespread idea. Again, this idea of bitulo zeokiumo, that negating the Torah is in fact a furthering of Torah. Okay, that finishes the main point I wanted to say in this year, but I couldn't resist a favorite idea of mine that I want to throw in that is connected. Okay, what did we just say? That we do interrupt Torah for uh, certain other mitzvot. Okay, I want to talk about a very interesting test case. Okay, now there is, oh, now I'm just curious. The person who just came in, Galaxy, sorry, what's your name? What's your connection to the yeshiva? If you could turn off your, uh, unmute yourself. I'm not sure if she hears me. She's smiling. Okay, we got a smile. Okay. Nope, we didn't get it on you. We lost the picture. Maybe I shouldn't have asked the question. All right. <laughs> but uh, in any case, you could also write in the chat. Oh, let's see if she wrote in the chat, actually. Let's just see. Sheila Darty. Ah, okay, there we go. Sorry. Terrific. Okay, excellent. Okay, so let's now go to this question. Okay, here we go. Okay, so we seem to have a rule book how we deal with these clashes. Now, there's a Gemara in Rosh Hashanah that talks about two of the most famous uh, Talmud scholars. I don't remember if it's a Bayan Rava or a Bayan Rabba, but the Gemara says they're both, they were both destined for a short lifespan. Okay, now we don't have a knowledgeable group, so, but my, my father, you're knowledgeable for a minute. Okay, who in Tanakh was cursed that all his descendants would have a short lifespan? Who knows? Who received that punishment? Okay, a biblical figure, not in Chumash, in Navi, who was told that because of the way he, their family acted, right, they'll have a short lifespan. Okay, anyone? Okay, so it was actually a Lee. Okay, Eli has told us, right, the Shofate at the time of Chana, when Chana goes to the Beit Midash, okay, they're told that the descendants of Eli were not like a long life. Now, the Gemara says that both Rava and Abaye were descendants of Eli, Eli Akohen, and yet one made it to 40 and one made it to 60. Like, again, in the Tamil times, there wasn't a bad lifestyle, lifespan, 40 years or 60 years. So the Gemara says they must have had certain mitzvot that helped overcome the curse. So the Gemara says the one who lived to 40, he studied Torah, and that Torah study enabled him to live till 40. And the one who didn't live till 40 studied Torah and engaged in chesed, and engaged in acts of compassion and kindness. And that dual threat, 
the twin forces, the cumulative force, let that person, that that scholar live to 60. Okay, we're good? So that is the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. I think it's Daf Yudchen. Okay, now the Chafetz Chaim asks a question in Avad Chesed. I have to give credit to this. I only know this because of a fellow named Revol Yakim Krumbein, who lives in my uh, community in Alonshvat. He's the class example of someone who's a really quiet fellow, where somehow very quiet fellows don't get enough recognition. He knows a ton and he's a very interesting person, but he's so quiet and shy and reserved that he's like this, uh, this hidden treasure. Now, I live in Yeshuv, thank God, with a lot of scholars who are well-known, like uh, Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, Rav Yaakov Medan, Rav Yol Benun, Dr. Yal Ziegler, Professor Yoni Grossman. So you don't really get noticed if you're quiet. Okay, so unfortunately, Rav Crumbine, and unfortunately, right, this is who he is. So I want to give, give him a little credit in a public forum here. So he said that he found this interesting discussion in the Chavetz Chaim's book called Avar Chesed, which is already intriguing because the degree that most of us learn the Chavetz Chaim, we know him as the author of the Mishnah Brura. He gives us halachic decisions. Or we know him as the author of the Shmirat Halashon, the one who tried to make a rule book for the laws of Lashon Hara. Right? That's how we know the Chavetz Chaim. I'm not sure how many people, oh, I should try my, my father because last week he was the one who actually read Herzl. Dad, have you learned through Avar Chesed? Ah, uh, there we go. So even my father has not learned to Avad Chesed. Okay, this is not uh, a savior that most people pick up too often. Okay. Ah, uh, there we go. Guys, look at Mark Whiteson, another great student. He's right, Rav, Rav Crumbine once did a um, a, a series on the Haritzion Virtual Bay Midrash about Musser, which was subsequently published as a book called Musser for Moderns. And now apparently Mark, Mark Whiteson has given his rabbinic approbation to Musser for Moderns. Okay, Mark is a good judge of books, so he's saying it's worth reading. Okay, so let's see what, I'll tell you what Rav Krumbein found in Abed Chesed. Rav Krumbein asked the following question. Now, uh, sorry, the Chavetz Chaim asked the following question. I actually don't think it's a great question, but sometimes a mediocre question could lead to a great answer. I think we're going to see an example of this right now. Okay, you might think it's a great question, I don't know, but I certainly think it's a great answer. The Chavetz Chaim says, wait, I don't understand. Uh, let's say Abai and Rava lived in the same world, in the same neighborhood, right? So how is it that one studied Torah and the other was engaged in Torah and Chesed? Since we have a rule book, which we just said, what's the rule book? If nobody else could do the mitzvah, interrupt your Torah study and do the mitzvah. If there are other people to do the mitzvah, then don't interrupt your Torah study and keep learning. So says the Chafetz Chaim, well, if Rav and Abai were in a certain town, Either there were other people available or there were not other people available. If there were other people available, they both should have stayed in the Bay Midrash. If there weren't other people available, then they both should have stopped. So why did it play out that one only studied and one did chesed? Now, I admit, someone could be a little bit too clever and say to me, well, Rava always left first and then Abai didn't have to go. Right? I realize somebody could say that. But, uh, but I still think that that's not really the answer. Right? Again, if there is some balance... Right. Sometimes they're you're supposed to stop. Sometimes you're not supposed to stop. Why do Abai and Rava come to different modes of practice? Okay. Now, before I get to the answer, just since he's back, Michael Epstein, can you, can you remind me of your right to connection? What did you say? Do you remind me how you're connected to the yeshiva? Yes. Uh, Ellie Jarosho is my grandson. Ah, there we go, guys. This is great because uh, notice we, we grandparents are more popular today than parents. Okay, this is amazing. Let me just look around and make sure that's true. Yes, absolutely. Okay, we got more grandparents on it. See, guys, that's who's serious in this world. The, the students themselves and the grandparents. 
parents, they're busy just partying somewhere. Okay, so excellent. We, we, we love your grandson, Michael Epstein. Okay, and Mazel Tov on his wedding this past year. Thank you. Okay, so the, um, now I think the Chafetz Chaim says a really profound answer. Okay, let's go to his answer. Says the Chafetz Chaim, maybe the whole question is based on a little bit of a mistake. Because what does the question seem to be assuming? Isn't the question assuming that, that there's a definitive answer to how, how much chesed opportunities there are in this world, right? There is a clear answer, and both Abai and Rava should come to the same conclusion, right? This is the same conclusion about whether they should be learning or doing chesed. But what if I said, and I think this is absolutely true, what if I said to you that it's not true that there is a answer to uh, what the amount of chesed is in this world? How many chesed opportunities are there? Depends on what kind of glasses I am wearing, how I perceive the world. I think this is absolutely true. Like, think about it. There's no definitive answer. Like right now, I'm sitting here in an office in the old city. I'm studying Torah. Am I being presented with chesed opportunities? So I could be really narrow about it. I look around the office. Hey, I'm the only person here, right? So I'm not being presented by any chesed opportunities. So obviously I should just stay and learn with you. There's nothing out there. But what if I was somehow had a more discerning eye and I went out now, I kept learning, but I went out to the Rova Square and looked around and I saw, are there poor people asking for charity? Is there anybody struggling with their bags? What I even thought, I said, oh, I'll go on the internet and see, is there somebody in a different neighborhood of Yerushalayim who I could be helping right now? All of a sudden, I would discover, hey, there are tons of chesed opportunities out there. But I think that makes this, this, this uh, rule book in some ways less practical, but more reasonable. There isn't a definitive answer. Like, because I think if it's too definitive, it wouldn't even make sense. Like, what if I'm more of a Torah person and somebody else finds chesed more, done more easily? Wouldn't it be reasonable to say maybe it's okay if my balance is different than their balance? Like, I'll have a little more Torah in my Torah chesed balance. They'll have a little more chesed in their balance. Like, that wouldn't be an evil thing if we didn't balance it all the same way. And maybe this is part of it, that what creates this kind of healthy imbalance? Well, whether you interrupt your Torah is a function of how cognizant you are of the chesed opportunities out there. Someone who naturally has a greater sensitivity to it will discover that he, need, he or she needs to close their Gemara more. Someone who doesn't have such a natural sensitivity to it will end up just learning all day. So that explains how you could have a buy and rub in the same town and yet come to such different conclusions. But I think it's a very powerful idea because I would suggest that even those of us who love Torah very much, if we never notice, that's a problem, right? Even if, like, there's some people who are better at it. Some people are just like, and they're always thinking of chesed opportunities. And okay, maybe we're not going to aspire or maybe we're not going to reach that level. But if we're never thinking about that, but I think the person who decides I could always be in the big midrash has somehow missed out, right? That uh, maybe sometime they have to put on those like radar chesed glasses and see why they should stop learning and do something else. But I think that is a, in my mind, that's the favorite idea I ever got from the Chavetz Chaim, even if it's not in the Mishnah Berurah and not in Shemir Lashon. I think it's a very powerful idea and I want to give credit to Rav Krumbay. So I just want to do a review and then take final questions. They, uh, I, I will say, I hope it's okay. Like when they asked me to give this year last week, I said, I just gave one two weeks ago. So they said, okay. So I said, but maybe they'll be bored of me. He said, no, it'll be all right. So I guess it worked out okay. So thank you for coming, especially those of you that heard me two weeks ago. 
Okay, but um, but uh, I just want to review the main ideas. Okay, we talked about interrupting Torah for mitzvah that others can't do, and we try to make why do you interrupt Torah for mitzvah that others can't. Ah, Natan, give good uh, good uh, advertising for of Corey over there. Okay, so we talked about Rabbi Hanan's model that Torah is demanding, but as soon as there's something else I have to do, then I stop doing the, then I'm not even high in Talmud Torah. But I prefer the Rav Hodner model, which is I'm not even interrupting my Talmud Torah. That because there's, again, as my mother said, right, there's values that I'm realizing, I'm low made, I'm not lasot. I am actually actualizing my Talmud Torah. I'm giving my Talmud Torah a greater force than it had before. That is why I interrupt Talmud Torah to do other mitzvot. Okay, then we talked about the Tosfot and Brachot, that you don't make a separate bracha every time you learn. And Tosfot wanted to argue that Talmud Torah is not interrupted in a way that Sukkah is interrupted and Tzvon is interrupted. And again, we had the foil. Rav Soloveitchik says that you somehow, in a real sense, are always thinking about Torah. He used the imagery of the mother and her child. Where Rav Hunter, again, plugs in the same answer. Rav says it really isn't interruption because Talmud Torah is animating all that I do. Eitan Sanger, thank you very much, guys. Eitan Sanger just brought me dinner. Thank you, Eitan. Okay, and Josh Milstein says I'm very clever that that could give new meaning to Talmud Torah Kinegid Kula. That all mitzvot, it's not just a weighing of how they match up. All mitzvot are part of the Talmud Torah process. Okay, excellent, Josh. And then finally, we said, wait, if we really have this rule book, so we went to the Chafetz Chaim, how could it be that Rav Nabai came to different conclusions? There's a rule book. If nobody else could do it, interrupt learning. If somebody else could do it, then you don't. But he pointed out that that's not a magic formula. That's not a precise mathematical calculation. That depends on how I'm looking at the world. Those who see more chesed opportunities will discover they're out there. Those who are not seeing them will discover they're not there. So I think we've had two very powerful ideas to take with us. One is how Talmud Torah could interact with the rest of our existence. How Talmud Torah should be an animating force. It's not a break. It all goes together. And secondly, uh, this idea of that how much chesed is out there just depends on how you look at the world.